Welcome to Science Radio, a space where we chat about culture, belief, wellness, and current events, all through the lens of faith. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Science Radio. My name's Jesse. I'll be your host today, and I'm honored to be joined by Professor Renee Batoon. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I, I'm stoked to have you. This has been a little uh, few months in the making, and I'm glad that we get to finally sit down and have this conversation. Professor Batoon, we first learned about your work through an article that was published in the conversation earlier this year, in February this year, as you were sharing with me before, has made quite a bit of waves in the health world ever since. We really enjoyed it. It's called Passive Vaping, Time We See It Like Secondhand Smoke and Stand Up for the Right to Clean Air. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about your background, what's sort of your world, and how did you become interested in this idea of passive vaping? Ah, well, it goes back to the days when I started in this field let me say, in the 1970s, I come from a respiratory physiology background. So the background is really pertinent when you're thinking of working and setting up big laboratories, which I did at Prince Alfred Hospital and at St. Vincent's Hospital, both those big hospitals. I was really seminal specifically at St. Vincent's to set up testing laboratories for lung function. And as I was doing that, I thought, gosh, I'm testing all these people. This is in the 1970s who are so sick from smoking. They're all sick from smoking. Why are we spending so much money on this sick from smoking when we can prevent smoking? And that's I had ticking in my head for some years and one of my friends still today, who's now a professor in public health, who's a colleague and friend who said to me, you've got such a big mouth, Renee. <laughs> Nobody's doing anything about this. Why don't you do something about this? And lo and behold, I looked around and sure enough, there wasn't anybody doing much about smoking except for, I have to say, uh, one particular group called the Seventh-day Adventists <laughs> who had the five-day plan. This is in the late 60s already they're doing this. I'd never heard really much about it except that I knew it went over five days. I went to meet who somebody who is still a friend of mine today called Kevin Price, who then was running this mm. Seventh-day Adventist program. And I exchanged ideas and thoughts about this and I thought perhaps we could do something for people who may not want to, say, take upon themselves something like, and it was already established then in the day, AA programs. So I thought let's do a smoker's clinic, something like that, but in a secular space, in a hospital-based, perhaps more scientific, let's have a look at the science behind this. And I did, and in 1979 I started the first smoker's clinic in Australia, about the second one in the world. Wow. So there were no clinics for people to go to, about which, of course, I knew very little. But I, oh, what I do know is that hundreds of people came, hundreds and hundreds of people. And this snowballed into me being asked to head up the quit campaigns clinics, the quit clinics we had in the quit campaigns, all those telephone lines that you know now about, we didn't have, we had people come to places. There was a big one at Sydney Hospital for people to come to. It was very important and it went along with the big anti-smoking campaigns we had in the day, big ones. 
people were really keen to do something about this and some found it difficult. Some found it easy peasy. No problem. I just quit. And that's what they said. And then, of course, we went into the idea not just of people quitting, but that people who were passive smokers had a case for saying, look, we don't want this in the home. We don't want this at work. And so you probably grew up in an environment where nobody smoked on your sitting next to you on a bus or in a train or at work or even in the household mm. anymore, in, in restaurants and all these areas that we now take for granted as being non-smoking places. Meanwhile, I'm writing how you can help people stop smoking, what you can do. And I learn a lot about nicotine addiction. I traveled to some seminal places in particularly in the UK, not necessarily in the United States. Some places in the United States where they're studying it in Canada were doing that, but not necessarily doing much clinical work, which is still today very interesting. Mm. I was doing more clinical work. How can I help people stop what I then began to understand as being addicted to nicotine. So I've written a lot of papers. I've written some books, written some, obviously some textbooks and some bits of textbooks in terms of addiction and in addiction medicine. So I've gone on to have quite a long history of helping people with their nicotine addiction. So fast forward, here we are, well into my retirement age. <laughs> I would have thought I was way past this by now and ready to move on to gardening. No, not really, but you can't imagine me doing that. <laughs> but fast forward many years later, 40 plus years later, and under the radar comes this particularly nasty way of delivering nicotine called vaping, mm. which has been going for some long time. This is not new. It wasn't new to me when I look in the 1990s, I already saw it, various apparati that people were constructing to vaporize nicotine so that you mm. breathed it in and didn't smoke it. But it didn't look like the vapes we know now, the little plastic ones, the disposable battery-operated right. things. Is it comparable to what you would imagine like a hookah to yeah, be? Uh, no, more like a bong. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you know Fair what enough. I'm might get my drift. <laughs> or, and they were sometimes managed by not always battery operators, sometimes plug in a lot. A hooker isn't. It's burnt. These were sort of vaporizing type. And some of them went on the principle like inkjet. Technology, oh. vaporizing the yeah. ink, you'd vaporize the nicotine and you could breathe it in. And I saw these things already late into the 1990s or so. And so it's not something that's all that new to me. It's the technology that's improved and improved and got so out of hand. So that technology is this battery operated apparatus with nicotine in some carrying fluid that you breathe in and you mm -hmm. generate the vape through the battery doing this, powering it. Yeah. Now, what's really nefarious for me and for everybody who knows much about nicotine addiction is that material can get down into the bottom, into the depths of the lungs very differently from smoking. Mm. So people just assume smoking and vaping is vaping safer and smoking's another way of doing it and not very safe because it's got all that particulate matter, right? And that... Because it does, when you're smoking a cigarette and burning tobacco leaves, really, mm. it does fall in the upper part of the lungs more than it does if it's vaporised. It gets down deeper. 
Now, the difference is quite substantial, and this is why I guess I have a particular concern with who's vaping today, is that it gets down so deep into the alveolar space that if you know your anatomy, that's the air sacs of which we've got millions and millions of them. Those air sacs are all covered with blood. And that's arterial blood. If you know your anatomy, there are veins and arteries. The veins are going to the heart and the arteries have come away from them, from the heart. Okay. So if you think this through, the lungs are putting oxygen into the blood and going to the left side of the heart, which then pumps it to, directly to the brain. Which means if you breathe something in into the lungs, it actually goes into those arteries and bypasses the right side of the heart, the venous side. Mm -hmm. You bypass it. In other words, putting it crudely, injecting nicotine into your veins. Straight into the bloodstream. Yeah, into the vein. Into the, uh, into, no, you're, if you see it, you're doing it in, usually intravenously, okay. into the veins. Okay. You, it is slower, slower uh-huh. than inhaling it into your arterial blood through your lungs. It, this is slower. Yep. Injecting it is slower than breathing it in okay. through the, say, the vaping yep. mechanism. Now, the people who make these vapes know this full well. This is very fast very high concentrations of nicotine going into the arterial system of your bypassing the venous straight to the brain. She snaps her fingers. Wow. Now that's so quick. The brain loves quick. (laughs) Intravenous slow. I'll give you another example of a very slow delivery of nicotine. It's a nicotine patch. Now I want to declare I do not work with any of the drug companies or for any of them that make these materials like patches, gums, inhalators, whatever, any of pharmacotherapies. I don't work for them. I I haven't for years and years. What's interesting to know is that there's no patch addiction. Nobody gets puts on a patch and goes, right. oh, wow, that's great. Right. That makes me feel better. Mm-hmm. Patches take hours and hours to work, so not it's, minutes, it's not too, seconds. It's too long to be able to form an addiction to it. To get the to brain going, wow, yeah, okay. relief, yep. right? And then, of course, remembering that nicotine is a very short-acting drug. It's only lasts in the body about 40 minutes, right. roughly 40 minutes. So 40 minutes, you've got this whack to the brain and then it wears off. Mm. Now, when the brain responds to nicotine, it goes happy, Dopamine, serotonin, beta endorphins. Keep in mind an endorphin is endogenous morphine. That's what beta endorphin stands for. You release that with nicotine, Mm -hmm. which is really very dependence producing because then it wears off. So you're happy, 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 and then not. Mm -hmm. Within like the space of 40 minutes, you're starting to go in withdrawals. So it's that shot of nicotine and then the immediate decline of it that actually forces you or generates the need to have another one, mm-hmm. to do it again. Mm-hmm. And it's the speed of delivery that worries me more than anything else, mm. the speed. So that's crazy. Uh, it's Because this, for me, I, I know you've said that it, you've noticed this even since the 90s, but I know for me and probably the rest of the world, this has seemed like, oh, wow, almost over overnight, vaping is everywhere. In fact, I was I was just reading an article from The Guardian this morning that says that whereas in 2021, one in 50 young women in the UK vape, now it is one in 15 in 2022. So it's 
the popularity has just shot up tremendously. Yeah. And all this across is a whole generation who who haven't ever had anything to do with smoking. That's just right. Just like yourselves. Yeah. Australia's had one of the lowest smoking rates in the world. In fact, where we are right now in the northern sit- suburbs of Sydney has one of the lowest in the world. Wow. And I get invited around the world to say, how did you do this? <laughs> what happened in Australia that you, in my lifetime, this yeah, is in yeah, my yeah. career, wasn't due to me, but you I had a, contributed. A part yeah, of it. We, yeah, everybody. And interestingly enough, the, the fact that this could be done, bringing the prevalence of smoking down so low, that whole generations of kids never saw anybody smoke. Yeah let alone want to smoke, even knew what it was, bought a packet of cigarettes. It was unheard of. We had such low, I think around here where we are in St. Ives, Mm. it's about 5%. Wow. One of the lowest in the world of smoking prevalence, if that. I I remember, like I was born in 92, and so I, all I knew about smoking was that it was a scary thing that you had to ask for because it was behind the counter. And maybe I'm, I'm biased since I grew up as an Adventist and anti-smoking was, it's almost, you could say it's almost part of my religion in a way, but all I knew was what smoking was and never experiencing it. And that's why I think it's so scary now that many of my peers who grew up in that same world are now taking up vaping because it's just seen as normal and not scary and dangerous. Yeah. It, it came under the radar really And particularly, as I said, I think Australia is a target for this because here's a whole community who's not in using, it's not smoking anymore, but maybe ripe for a whole new generation of consumers. And that's really why it was targeted because we have such low prevalence of smoking in a whole community of young people who are right, as I said, for the picking and become the next generation of consumers of this product. And that's really what's so scary. The other most scary part for me is, as you say, younger people doing it. And because we know, and we have always known that included smokers, that the younger you were when you started smoking, Mm. meaning exposure to nicotine, Mm. the younger you were, and there is a difference between 12 and 14 and 14 and 18, there are differences there in the brain development. So the younger you were, the harder it was to quit later on in life. So if you started at 12, it was more difficult than if you started at 18 mm. when you're 60 trying to stop doing this. Mm. Why is the case is that the brain develops around this chemical. We have, unfortunately, a quirky response to nicotine. It shouldn't really be there. It shouldn't be in your breath, let alone you reacting to it, let alone you smoking anything or vaping anything. We shouldn't even be near it. It's actually a plant that grows wild All over the world, by the way, in Australia too, we have native nicotine plants Mm. and they act as, interesting, as pest repellents. So back in the day, once upon a time, people used to have snails. They'd take out a cigarette and break it open and disperse the tobacco around a plant, like a tomato plant. Yeah, okay. And that would actually repel it's so poisonous, it repels the snails. So the, the animals have the good sense to stay away from it. To stay from away this. from it. And it's an interesting sort of phenomenon uh, of the plant. <clears throat> but we were never built to smoke this no. stuff. I know you, you spoke before about the, 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 the delivery time of uh, a vape versus a traditional cigarette. And you may have mentioned this already, so forgive me if you have. Let's talk about dosage and like 
how much is how much nicotine is delivered? Is there a difference between a traditional cigarette and a vape? Uh, it's a tricky question because we have over the decades learnt how you smoke whatever it is you're breathing in matters more than what's in it. I know that sounds a bit strange, but when you drag hard on a cigarette, suck hard, as they say, and hold your breath, you get more than if you just went puff on a cigarette. And the same applies to vaping too. So if you're dragging in and holding your breath, you're going to get more transit time, think Mm. of it like that, for the chemical to pass across the alveolar wall into your bloodstream. So just holding your breath will do that. People who use marijuana know that, holding their breath, they do this, <laughs> hold your breath, hold your breath, hold your breath. It increases the transit time. Smokers have done this all the time. They wake up in the morning, they drag on heavy on a cigarette, and then throughout the day it's a little lighter. Mm. Vapors do the same. So does it matter what's in the actual Is it the equivalent of a packet of cigarettes, one vape? Is it 40 packets of cigarettes? That's become a bit tricky for me to say, yeah, that's an exact equivalent. We're trying to look more scientifically at blood levels of nicotine in people rather than how much you're using. I don't want to be tricky here, but, for Mm. example, if you use up a vape in one day versus using it up in and it's got, 3,000 puffs in it Mm. versus using it up in a week, Mm. the one Mm. of them, then is that the same? Are we looking at the same thing? You could do 3,000 in a day by just going, it's all in the air. Or you could do one a week of those, the same thing, and drag it in, hold your breath, and do that five times a day. So it's not it's apple. Tricky. It's not apples to apples here. No, it's tricky, and it, it is a bit of a dilemma we have. So we're doing some studies. I am with my medical students looking at what's in your saliva when you vape, and what's that compared to what you just bought. The, mach- the apparatus you just bought says four thousand puffs or thirty nano milligrams of nicotine. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind a milligram, one milligram of nicotine is fatal dose. That wow. would kill you. So how come you don't die from thirty in a, or at least even one in a cigarette on its own? Some of the cigarettes you might know about contain one milligram. Yeah, yeah. Most of it's in the air. So you're losing you're a lot losing of it. most of it. Yeah. In fact, eighty percent is in the air. Yeah, wow. Not 18, 80. So you're really not getting much bang for your buck, oh, realistically. You well, you are. No, you'd have thought that it, th- these are levels in nanograms. You yeah, remember okay. a nanogram is a millionth of a milligram. But that doesn't mean that's not significant to the body. Oh, no, the brain goes, I love this. <laughs> this is significant and not enough. Oh, yes, we're talking 100 nanograms per mil. That's Crazy. a lot. Yeah. But most of the stuff that people breathe <sighs> goes straight out, and that's why I was so interested in Okay, we've had this story about passive smoking. How about passive vaping? Mm. How about you're standing next to what everybody considers to be and your friends might think is safe? There's no evidence for that. Let's go to safety too. Is it safe to be standing next to somebody vaping when it was never safe to stand next to somebody smoking? Mm. So we're now going on the principle that we better be very cautious about this. This Mm. is called the precautionary principle. Shall we wait? 30 years to say, okay, yeah, gosh, we didn't know that passive vaping causes lung cancer mm. because it could or heart disease, which it could. 
because that's where we're looking at. We're looking at breathing in material, for example, nicotine, that has a huge impact on your heart. Probably that's the best studied. There's lung reactions to the flavorings and everything else. People go, wow, mm, yum, that's pineapple. Isn't that delicious? (laughs) You're not supposed to be breathing that in, everybody. (laughs) People forget. This came about because one of my students, as I mentioned in this article, Mm. said, oh, look, it's just pineapple. Isn't that fantastic? It smells so nice. It's all pretty safe. Mm. Not really. What makes you think that's safe? And then you're breathing in somebody else's nicotine, 80% of what was in that is gone in in the room you're in. Now, you don't know if they're in a car, small space, confined space. That matters, right, the ventilation of that room. But by no means just assume all of this is safe to you. Mm. It's not. And I've seen people do that. They smoke outside and vape inside. We don't want people thinking that vaping is any less significant. And go on that precautionary principle. Don't wait till something happens to say, mm. oh gosh, we should have all been doing this outside. I'd like to drill down on that if you don't mind. I have a pregnant wife. I have friends and family members with small children going through pregnancies, all that sort of stuff. And so I've become a lot more aware in recent months about the effects that vaping has on young kids, on kids inside the womb, all that sort of thing. This was There was actually a conversation that was sparked in my family a little while ago about some of the research that's coming out, and forgive me if I'm misquoting, how they're discovering that potentially a vape can saturate a room and stay on the walls and the surfaces for up to a month, I think was what the thing was saying. So let's talk about the, the passive aspect of it, the potential dangers to children, the potential dangers to babies, the potential dangers, just you and me, all that sort of stuff. In the context of the passive vape, what does that look like? What do we need to be aware of? This is called tertiary. Have you heard that? This is the primary as you're doing it. Yep. Secondary is somebody else is breathing it in. And the tertiary one is when it's on the walls or the, on the carpets, on the clothing, right. and it's staying there. And it's, nobody's actually doing it, but yeah. it's, 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 it's got this tertiary. It's third, third hand. hand. Yep. So it's called third hand or tertiary nicotine. And so... People have been looking at a whole gamut of things related to, to this. One of them is that the nicotine might enter the baby's bloodstream through the skin. It's very slow. Remember, skin is very slow. So does it breathe it in? The answer is probably not. Mm. But do they smell it? And nicotine is odourless. I want to remind you of that. Mm-hmm. Colourless and odourless. It's not what you smell when you smell somebody smoking. That's the burning of the products in the tobacco leaf that come in the leaf, as the leaf is. But it's not nicotine that smells and it's not nicotine that stains your fingers. Mm-hmm. It's not. That's a mistake people make. So we always like to debunk these myths. You don't mm-hmm. smell nicotine. But what you might smell is the, the usage of it. So people are thinking, okay, why do some mums, and they do this now today, wear a gown over if they're a smoker or Nana's a smoker, say Mm -hmm. your grandmother is coming in to cuddle the baby, but she's a smoker. Put a gown on or change your clothing. The reason why is the smell of it, it's more the smell of it, equates to being held and cuddled and fed. Mm. This is all nice. Those psychological, if you like, components 
of it, mm-hmm. the nice feeling. Mm. Bub grows up thinking the smell of that is the smell I had when I was cuddled and held. Wow. And sometimes breastfed. So it's more that aspect that I think is a valid way to talk about this. I recall speaking to somebody who was probably the most important researcher in nicotine in his time was a psychiatrist in London called Mike Russell. And he already had this idea about this. Psychiatrists started the very first smokers clinic in the world Mm. at the Maudsley in London. And he said to me, what do you think, Renee? It doesn't come off the wall and jump onto the, into the, person. Mm. It's not going to fall off the wall and it's not going to, he didn't think it would stay potent. However, we now know years later, this is a long time later, that that it does stay potent. You, mm. This would, for example, if nicotine was on the wall of a lab that was testing nicotine in somebody's urine or blood, it would contaminate the lab. Mm-hmm. It would contaminate the tests. We now know that. Easy to contaminate with what has been on the walls. Say somebody was smoking there 30 years ago. No, you have to paint the walls. Wow. Yeah. It's that's, still there 30 years later. It's still there. That's interesting. But the stain that you might see, the yellow stain, sure. is not nicotine. So sure. that, there, there's that mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <sighs> but if I was you, I would say, look, apart from everything else, I don't want my bub, my newborn, or the mum, right? Yeah. In the whole perinatal period, having anything to do with no. any of this. Anybody comes in, or everybody out. Yeah. And I've always said, and this is sometimes quite difficult in some cultures, where you can't say to the person, the significant person, for example, it could be a patriarchal person, we've come across this, who this is my home, this is my castle, I want to do what I like here. So what we've advised people like mums who are pregnant or with their children and they don't want to have, they want to see granddad or whoever it might be, the elder, right? They want to be with them, but mm. they really can't tolerate this circumstance. Then you go, you take the child and you go out the door. When granddad or whoever it might be, the mum, whoever it is who says, I'm not moving from this spot, this is my home, my castle, then you go. Mm. And sure enough, we've seen significant changes because, you see, it's unacceptable. That person learns it's unacceptable Mm. to my children, grandchildren today. It's not a modern society. Modern society says this is unacceptable. I can't force my elder to do anything, but I will leave when they're doing this. You have the autonomy to do that, though. You can go out the door with the children until they've finished doing whatever they're doing and you can come back. But every t- be consistent. Every time you light up, every time you vape, I'm not here. Mm. I'm going out. Mm. And we've seen this being very successful little strategy mm. to avoid passive smoking without getting into big fights and arguments over this. Yeah, that's good. Professor, I want to talk about you've got some really great stuff that you're doing with vaping. But before we get to that, there's just one more little thing tugging at my brain that I will not be satisfied if we can't talk about it just a little bit. And that's the question of legislation and what needs to happen in order for us to be able to deal with this. Now, as you've mentioned several times, we are in some ways the perfect society to be targeted by these companies. 
because of the great legislation that was enacted in Australia around smoking. My question, and maybe this is a naive question, but why haven't companies, or sorry, why haven't uh, governments gotten in ahead of this? Why haven't we put these companies through more rigor and saying, well, you need to make sure that you do the test before you can sell the product? And what do we need to do uh, about it? Well, the tobacco industry is a really very potent and strong lobbyist around the world. They're, they've got a lot of money and they put this into action both at federal and state levels. So mm. they're formidable lobbyists mm. and it really doesn't take, as I said earlier, a lot of people to counter this lobbying by making by exposing it for what it is, especially now when we're looking at this as being a consumer issue where the younger, we know the younger you are, the more likely you're going to take off with this for life mm. and you're going to take off with this for, if not, if you can't get vapes, you'll smoke. We know that. So uh, my view is we ban the lot. We once, I mentioned this not that long ago, we once had chewing tobacco in Australia and people go, did we? I said, yeah, we had it. We banned it. Did we? And I always say, yeah, we did. And did you have you missed it? And nobody even knew we had it, let alone <laughs> missed it. So I'm thinking we should do what we've done in the past. I'm not really a proponent of making a liberal ac liberal access to it. What we've got now currently is legislation going ahead so that you need a prescription for this. Everybody who vapes with a nicotine-containing cigarette vape, sorry, and requires a prescription, 98% of all vapes have nicotine in them. I'm for not only having legislation, but I'm also for having litigation. Do what we did then, not just depend on the government to move things, but depend on individuals to move things along. I personally go into vape stores and tell them, wave my finger and say to them, you sell vapes to kids, you're gone, you're done. Mm. And I've had some interesting reactions <laughs> to that. It's against the law, right? So there are drugs that are against the law, but these, some of these vape stores are openly selling vapes to kids yeah. around where you live, around where I live. Yeah. We can't have it. Yeah. We cannot have this. And I, as a, a grandmother now, mm. I've got, I'm not having it. I'm not having all this work destroyed so that, some of these big tobacco industries can make a buck from my grandkids. And who knows what the health consequences are, let alone the fact that they're going to have to be doing this for the rest of their lives. We're not having it. Yeah. So I think there's legislation, but there's also public action, well, I think. Good on you. Why not? That that really warms my heart. It's Yeah. It's a big thing to go up to a stranger and and give them a piece of your mind. You Obviously, know, it's worth it. I, I, right? I've seen tobacconists sell one cigarette to a kid. I nearly went ropeable. Yeah. That's against the law. Yeah. And I, I'm not going to have it. Mm -hmm. And you are entitled. We in Australia are entitled to, to say something. A, you don't have to be sold it to you. Yeah. Um, you can actually say something. B, and of course, put them into government department authorities. Mm -hmm. And that's some of the legislation now is really tightening on finding groups that are doing that mm. and changing the importation of these products. But mm. why are we selling drugs to kids legally? No way. This, isn't, this can't. This is a drug like all the others, Yeah, just like the rest. It's reprehensible. Shocking. So we know that it's dangerous. We, we know that it's addictive. But we also know that 
it's possible to overcome addiction. And you have a really amazing initiative called the Vaping Cessation Clinic. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that and some of the other work that you're doing around around this space? Yeah, thank you. It started to become very evident to me because a lot of people who came and have been coming to Smokers Clinic want to quit vaping. Mm. And I was wondering also, there is really no vaping cessation clinic. And back to the future, I thought it's time we started this. And we've now put some protocols into place, some programs into place, some ideas that what sort of do we need? Does everybody need this? No, just like smoking. There's a range of this. I don't know if you noticed, Mm. but over your time, people just quit smoking and said, that's it, I'm done with it. And that was it. And then there are people who are terribly addicted to it. And we know why. It has nothing to do with their personality. Everything's an addictive personality. We've thrown that into the bin, by the way. It doesn't exist really. It's how your brain reacts. You chemically respond to nicotine and I don't. That's it. Okay. It's not like you're, you're, are you born to be nicotine addicted? Possibly. It's a chemistry like the colour of your eyes. Bad luck for you (laughs) that if you're exposed to nicotine, you might latch onto it in the brain and we've got enough genetic studies to show that some people are more prone to taking it on and getting what I mentioned earlier, that dopamine, serotonin, beta endorphin release, and other people get nothing at all. Wow. They go, look, I've tried it and it didn't do a thing for me. Mm. What's with you? The other person goes, yeah, I tried it and loved it from get-go. That's because we know there are varieties of this. Some people far more prone. It has nothing to do with your upbringing either, your background. It's just bad luck for you. Chemistry, that's how it works. Now, if you know that, that's already a relief for some people who Mm -hmm. are addicted to it, that they, it's not their fault. Mm -hmm. But the younger you are when you start it, the more latch on you get, the more you start to, this is the terminology for this, neuroadapt to nicotine and use nicotine in place of other chemicals that you would use in your brain. Mm -hmm. When that happens, some young people, old people, become really very distressed when they try to stop doing it. Now, we have well-entrenched and well-documented studied evidence for getting off smoking. Can we do the same for getting off vaping? It's Is it all nicotine addiction anyway? It is, really. So we're pussyfooting around about this a little bit, saying, oh, vaping cessation, where's the evidence for that? That's a bit of a pussyfoot. I think it's nicotine, nicotine. In fact, it's my impression is it's far worse. Withdrawals are worse. It's particularly bad in young kids. They get really serious withdrawals. Remember, between vapes, between this one and the last one I'm doing, I've had this terrible anxiety. It's wearing off. Some kids have this very badly. Others don't have it at all. Mm. So it makes it difficult. How do we measure this? So we make an, do an assessment. I might measure how much nicotine they're getting in their saliva. I can measure the metabolite of it. I do that. Every single attendance, I test them because it gives me an idea of what they're getting out of what they're doing mm. and then how to manage that better. So we have a protocol for that, a protocol for how long you see them, what am I going to do? Am I going to put them on the heavy-duty medications, which you can do, which we do with smokers, because after all, it's going to kill them. Mm. The bottom line is you've got to remember, one in two smokers dies from it. One in two. Wow. 50-50 chance you're going to die prematurely from This is a plain 
you don't want to get on. That is insane. It's insane. So if you know that, if you know that, and keep in mind, addictions. One of the definitions of addictions is that even though you know that, mm. you can't stop doing yeah. it. That's what what something that defines an addiction. This loss of autonomy, and kids have low autonomy over this. Remembering it ranges between being not at all having this at all to having it really badly. And then we, what are we going to do? We get out the big guns sometimes, pharmacotherapies, behavioural changes. There's a lot to do. And we do this for some long time. This is not something that's going to go away in a couple of days or weeks. We know that relapse is pretty common. And, of course, all your friends are doing it and it's cheap, which we don't want it to be cheap and yeah. easy access. Yeah. This makes relapse really substantial. So we don't want to have access. That's the thing about if we ban this, it's gone. For the vast majority, it's gone. And is it going to generate an underground illegal market? It's got one hell of a legal illegal market. Is it going to go underground? Look, all drugs go underground, but most people don't break the law. Most people wouldn't do some of the horrid things people do for the current illicit drugs, they wouldn't do it. We know, I think we've got good evidence to say that banning it is really probably for me personally and for the evidence there, the best option. And helping people get off it and stay off it. Mm. It will help them stay off it. If you can't get it, you can't do it. Last note, if somebody wants to get in touch with a clinic or whatever it is. Not that... many clinics around the world. Yeah, this is yeah. it for the moment. This is it in Australia and I don't know of any others really in the world yet. This is probably the one of the first ever. At the moment, um, I have a clinic. Um, this is through Ramsey Northside Clinic in Sydney who've been very gracious in supporting this hugely. And so we like to see this work and perhaps spread out through the Ramsey Clinics, cool. which are quite substantial around the world, not just in Australia, around the world, not just in Australia. Awesome. All right. Well, hey, Professor Batoon, thank you so much for sharing on this really quite serious topic. I just want to say thank you for all your work over so many years in smoking and respiratory disease and and now, as you said, in your retirement, being on the warpath against vaping. It's quite amazing. Hopefully my last hurrah because, you know, we don't want to see this come back as an, in another form again. Yeah. Shocking. 100%. It's pretty shocking. All right. Well, thank you for uh, for everything. And uh, we'll uh, see you next time for another episode of Science Radio. Thanks, everybody. This episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Signs of the Times magazine. A print subscription is $28 a year or just $14 for a digital subscription. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. This is an Adventist Media Podcast.